Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there, guys. Welcome back to the 1% Better Podcast. This is the part two of the 2019 books review, books that made me better, that were well worth the time spent to read and learn from. And as I started the first episode of this two-parter, I didn't plan to do a two-parter, but now I am doing it because the other one went a bit long and hopefully uh, you're back for this second part broken up into two. And let's get straight into the final five books and let's play our little music jingle again to bring that on. Yeah, I don't think that really fits. I think that's more of a kind of a look back or some sort of fantasy type thing. I'll I'll get a better jingle. But book number six is, I think, the only really biography of the ten. Uh, The next one is a little bit of a autobiographical but this one is a brilliant read a a very very interesting story one that I can kind of connect in with for multiple reasons and it is called Shoe Dog by Phil Knight who is the creator of Nike remember seeing this in airports people reading it for a few years didn't know what it was about obviously then for some reason didn't see the actual Nike swoosh on the front of it and then it became very clear. Reading the very front page, the testimonials, one from Bill Gates, a refreshingly honest reminder of what the path to business success really looks like. It's an amazing tale, Bill says. And Warren Buffett, the best book I read last year, Phil is a gifted storyteller. And he definitely is that. The book is uh, chapter by chapter starting and broken out by each chapter is like a year in Phil's life and starts in 1962 right up to um, 1980 I think and then kind of looks jumps forward and it was really I suppose 1980 when it started to take off for Nike and just the back page just a little bit of intro about it fresh out of business school Phil Knight borrowed $50 from his father and launched a company with one simple mission import high-quality, low-cost running shoes from Japan, selling the shoes from the boot of his Plymouth Valant. Knight grossed 8000 in the first year, 1963. Today, Knight's annual sales top $30 billion, and its swoosh is more than just a logo. But Knight, the man behind the swoosh, has always been a mystery. Now, in a memoir that's surprising, humble, Unfiltered, funny, and beautifully crafted, he tells his story at last. He recalls the foundational relationships that formed the heart and soul of Nike and how they together created a brand, a culture, and changed everything. And anyone that has an interest in running, because himself, Knight, was a runner, uh, and an interest in Nike and sportswear, uh, you've probably worn and bought it over the course of the years, um, and business and leadership, uh, all of those things are very much prominent in this book, and it's definitely one I would say that is a a really easy read, a quick quick read. I don't know if that's the right word, but one you'll just devour and dive into, um, and want to really understand and figure out how 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 it all worked out in the end, not without near misses and failures and mistakes along the way, uh, as most businesses that make it, that stick around, have. So that's it. Shoe Dog, number six, or number one of part two, 
by the author uh, founder Phil Knight. All right, next up is another one that had come out a few years ago, have heard about it, hadn't got around to reading it until this year, and it is by a gentleman called Matthew Said, called Bounce, The Myth of Talent and the Power of Practice. And for me, somebody who's been espousing the benefits of practice for a while and the belief in deliberate practice, taking a very focused time and effort on doing something that little bit better ties in with one percent better in lots of ways when i'm coaching and doing group coaching i've brought the concept of deliberate practice up an awful lot and very rarely has anyone heard about it or was able to explain it back to me which is very interesting because ultimately it's something we kind of do in everyday life from growing up learning your abcs you kind of have a deliberate practice of that but this book talks about the 10,000 hour rule in lots of detail and again something you've probably heard about I think uh, a Malcolm Gladwell book talks about it outliers perhaps as well but this one goes into it in great detail not only is the 10,000 hours a rule that that stands up but it's taking it from an angle that you really need to do the practice deliberately and of course there's other variables around getting in the right environment getting the proper coaching applying yourself in a specific way uh, rather than just kind of randomly practicing it's all very very much uh, focused and he goes into lots of detail Matthew does himself was a Olympic athlete he uh, he was a table ten- an, an international table tennis champion uh, after obviously many hours of practice and he talks about that himself so maybe I'll just read a little bit from it to give you a sample of what's going on in the book so this piece is actually about the the Williams sisters, the tennis stars, and their father was hugely influential in how they became famous and excellent, I suppose famous is the wrong word, how they became amazing tennis players. So this is a little bit of it. Tennis training began in earnest when Venus was four years, six months, and one day old, and Serena was three years old. And while the court's that were available for practice were riddled with potholes and surrounding gangs, Richard carved out remarkable opportunities for his daughter, just to note they were living in Compton, I think, at the time. Training would involve Richard standing on one side of the net, feeding 550 balls he kept in a shopping cart. When they were finished, they would pick up the balls and start again. As part of their training, the girls trained with baseball bats and were encouraged to serve at traffic cones until their arms ached. The two once had a practice session during school holidays that began at 8am and lasted till 3pm. As Venus put it, when you're little you just keep hitting and hitting and hitting. My dad worked hard to build our technique, Venus has said. He's really a great coach. He's very innovative. He always has a new technique, a new idea, a new strategy to put in place. I don't really think of these things, but he does. When the sisters were 12 and 11, Richard invited teaching pro Rick Mackey, who had earlier coached such tennis stars as Mary Pierce and Jennifer Capriati, to come to Compton and watch his daughters play. He was impressed by the sisters' skill and athleticism and invited them to study with him at his Florida Academy. And soon after, the family relocated to the Sunshine State. By then, both sisters had already clocked up thousands of hours of practice. So, if you're like me thinking about your kids growing up, my one-year-old 
becoming a future tennis star, it's good to know that they need to practice and do it in a deliberate way, but don't burn them out or piss them off too much like uh, Andre Agassi's father did, who has another brilliant book that, if you haven't read that one, uh, I, I, I recommend it. But Matthew Said Bounce, well worth the deep dive into practice and how one can get to the top, to the peak, as long as they're applying themselves with discipline and doing it in a deliberate way. So that's number seven. All right, book number eight, and number eight and number ten are by the same author, which is probably because number eight was so good, I had to read number ten very quickly afterwards. His name is Charles Duhigg, and number eight is called The Power of Habit, why we do what we do and how to change. And this is kind of a fundamental question I've been asking myself for years. When I stumbled across this one, uh, it seemed to help answer so many questions on around habits and exactly why we do what we do and how potentially we can change, as the name suggests. And one thing that came into me over the year when I'm posting pictures of pages of books that I'm reading and people comment and stuff, is my approach myself and just going off topic a little bit from when I read a book how do I take notes and underline and make it something that sticks because if you're like me you would read books and certain parts would stand out and you must say wow that's really interesting and unless you take action write it down take notes on it you kind of forget about it shortly after so I've kind of got into the habit of for books like this and I know it slows down the reading process but it it is very valuable because you really learn what it is, is to take kind of a PowerPoint presentation and put the key points of each chapter into a few slides, uh, take some images from the web that you might be able to get related to the book and build out, I kind of build out a, some content on it. And, and I've used that over the last couple of years in presentations, in workshops that I've been doing in coaching. And it really helps reinforce some of the messages uh, talk about so just as a as an aside that's the approach that I take sometimes to uh, really cement the learnings from a book like The Power of Habit so this as I said kept popping up in my radar over the last couple of years fascination around habits very keen to dive into it and it definitely didn't did not disappoint in any way Charles Duhigg's style he works for New York Times I believe and he uh, obviously has put a few books out over the last few years. Very interesting writer. His ability to tell a story uh, combined with very much facts really helps you get a grasp of it. He, in this book, identifies a number of people that have had long-term habits, uh, good and bad, um, organizations that form help you form habits that um, can really make you improve or in some ways maybe not and it uh, definitely is a, a well well worth a read so I'm just going to read a little bit about um, what Charles himself talks about the book as how it's divided he is uh, in, in his prologue so here we go this book is divided into three parts the first section focuses on how habits emerge within individual lives it explores the neurology of habit formation how to build habits and how to change old ones and the methods for instance that one ad man used to push toothpaste from an obscure practice 
and to brushing from an obscure practice into a national obsession. I forgot about that, actually. It shows how Procter & Gamble turned a spray named Fabrice into a billion-dollar business by taking advantage of consumers' habitual urges, how Alcoholics Anonymous reforms lives by attacking habits at the core of addiction, and how coach Tony Dungy, a US coach, reversed the fortunes of the worst team in the National Football League by focusing on his players' automatic reactions to subtle on-field cues. The second part of the book examines the habits of successful companies and organizations. It details how an executive called Paul O'Neill, before he became Treasury Secretary, met a struggling aluminium manufacturer into the top performer in the Dow Jones industrial average by focusing on one keystone habit and how Starbucks turned high school dropouts into top managers by instilling habits designed to strengthen their willpower. It describes why even the most talented surgeons can make catastrophic mistakes when hospitals' organisational habits go awry. So the individual, the team, the organisation. And the final part, the third part, looks at the habits of societies and recounts how Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, succeeded in part by changing the ingrained social habits of Montgomery, Alabama, and why a similar focus helped a young pastor named Rick Warren build the nation's largest church in Saddleback Valley, California. And finally, it explores thorny ethical questions such as whether a murderer in Britain should go free if he can convincingly argue that habits led him to kill his wife. So if that has piqued your interest around habits, and just to note as well, at the end, it gives a framework, I would say, that Charles himself calls a loose framework to how to analyze your habits and how to change them and how to make that happen over a period of time. And again, it does take time to change habits, but when you know stuff about them, like this book uh, explains, I think you'll have a better chance of doing so. So that's book number eight, The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg. Okay, book number nine is called The Little Book of Ikigai, The Essential Japanese Way of Finding Your Purpose in Life. And this one is by a gentleman called Ken Mogi. It had been on my shelf for about a year. I think I started it last year, the first couple of pages, and dropped it and came back to it this year because the idea of Ikigai and a couple of people I know that follow this framework process, follow the the, the pillars closely, came into my uh, awareness and I thought it'd be good to read the, the full book this time around and see if there's anything useful coming out of it. And while a lot of my own coaching and training and my own personal development has focused on figuring out my own purpose and my values and knowing myself better, it's always good to read different perspectives on that to see if there's alignment, to see if there's new tools or techniques or ideas that could stand out that could help either reinforce what you know, question it, uh, change it, or just useful when coaching others to bring up something for them to think about that might resonate and help as they dig into some of that area. The podcast I did about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, with a guy called James Moffat, we talked about Ikigai there. It's a framework he's using. And what stood out for him was he went to a coach after losing his job and the coach very much used Ikigai framework and asked him, what 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 are you who are you the question of who you are and spent 
a, a, a number of sessions to dig into that and figuring out your purpose will help with your who question and and why question perhaps so here's just a little piece from uh, one of the early chapters in the book for a couple of years in the middle of the 1990s i was doing postdoctoral research in the physiological laboratory at the cambridge university i was lodging in a house owned by an eminent professor when he showed me the room i would be staying in he pointed to a chair and explained that it had sentimental value for him his father had made it especially for him when he was a small child there was nothing extraordinary about the chair to be honest it was rather clumsily made the design was not refined and there were ragged irregular features here and there if the chair was for sale in a market it wouldn't have fetched much money having said that i could also see by the glimmer in the professor's eyes that the chair had a very special meaning for him and that was all that mattered it had a unique place in the professor's heart just because his father had made it for him that is what sentimental values are all about and this is just a small example, but a powerful one, of Ikigai. Ikigai is like the professor's chair. It is about discovering, defining, and appreciating those life's little pleasures that have meaning for you. It's okay if no one else sees that particular value, although as we have seen with Ono earlier in the book, and as you will find throughout this book, pursuing one's private joys in life often leads to social rewards. You can find and cultivate your own ikigai, grow it secretly and slowly, until one day it bears a quite original fruit. So that's a little bit about ikigai, good little example of how you can find ikigai in everything and anything, and it's maybe well worth a read. All right then, we got to the final one, and that obviously warrants this inappropriate transition sound that I promise I will get better ones for when I use it in the future. But the last one, it's called Smarter, Faster, Better. And the the word better appropriately uh, positioned itself at the end as this is all about getting better. And this is from Charles Duhigg as well. Although it mightn't have been as good as The Power of Habits, it is still full of so much useful insights and this year i wrote probably three articles around productivity and how to be and why to be more productive definitely pull some good ideas from this book when i put the final one together i don't think i've shared the final one yet but it's how to be smarter with your time how to remain motivated how to absorb data better and ultimately to be more productive and i think Duhigg got the idea for this book Uh, towards the end of writing The Power of Habits when he was trying to juggle writing his day job, being a father, a husband, so much going on and he was inspired by a medical doctor that seemed to always have time for everything and still get a million and one things done and that sparked the idea and which is brilliant, right? That sort of thing is fascinating that an idea came to him while he was writing another book and that became another great seller new york times best-selling author Duhigg. so i would highly recommend this one as well and the part that i'm pulling out it's from the chapter around absorbing data and this it's one of those frequency illusion things that popped up to me recently or the batter meinhof phenomenon and it's when you kind of become aware of something it pops up a lot and you often might hear people talking about taking notes and they're typing in their notes 
in a in a lecture or minutes in a meeting and they don't retain that much of the information and that's scientifically proven that when you actually write something down with hand that you end up taking in more of it it breaks up the the process it kind of chunks it up because we are suffering from this information blindness that Duhigg talks about in this chapter and that our brains crave reducing things down to two or three smaller options or, or smaller chunks and that's when things become a little bit more easy to absorb so just a little bit about that one way to overcome information blindness is to force ourselves to grapple with the data in front of us to manipulate information by transforming it into a sequence of questions to be answered or choices to be made this is sometimes referred to as creating disfluency so the word disfluency is is the key one here because it relies on doing a little bit of work instead of simply choosing the house wine you have to ask yourself a series of questions white or red expensive or cheap instead of sticking all your 401k brochures into a drawer you have to contrast the plans various benefits and make a choice it might seem like a small effort at the time but those tiny bits of labor are critical to avoiding information blindness the process of creating disfluency can be as minor as forcing ourselves to compare a few pages on a menu or as building a spreadsheet to calculate our 401k payouts but regardless of the intensity of the effort the underlying cognitive activity is the same we are taking a mass of information and forcing it through a procedure that makes it easier to digest the important step seems to be performing some kind of operation said adam atler professor at nyu who has studied disfluency if we make people use new words in a sentence they'll remember it longer if you make them write down a sentence with the word they'll start using it in conversation when atler conducts experiments he sometimes gives people instructions in a hard to read font because as they struggle to read with the words they read the text more carefully the initial difficulty in processing the text leads you to think more deeply about what you're reading as you spend more time and energy making sense of it when you ask yourself a few questions about wine or compare the fees on various 401k plans the data becomes less monolithic and more like a series of decisions and when information is made disfluent we learn more and somebody on twitter that i was connected with recently was talking about how they were trying to do typing stuff down for ages and then one day they just moved and went to a whiteboard or wrote it down on a, a journal and it became so much easier because they were doing it maybe in a more disfluent way and the brain was engaged more and less on autopilot and more uh, more conscious. So that's disfluency, something that I learned from this book, but it's loaded with other really cool things to take away. And that book, as well as most of them, if not all of them, there's links on the website, there's links in the show notes to them. I won't make anything out of it. You can buy it wherever you want, but it's just for convenience. It's there and... Hopefully, it's something you can uh, avail of. So that's it, guys. That's the 10 over two episodes and 10 books that I read this year that I genuinely believe were not only worth my time reading, but worth my time putting this together and sharing forward with you guys. uh, All well worth a read. And if I step back and look at the themes that come out, mindfulness, meditation, uh, 
awareness, checking what's going on in our own lives and our own worlds and knowing ourselves better definitely ties into a lot of it. Decision making, this book, Smarter, Faster, Better, that I just talked about, The Power of Choice from uh, Barry Schwartz, all uh, or The Paradox of Choice, Barry Schwartz, all about decision making and productivity. Habits absolutely come up, so getting better. And it, it definitely aligns with the values that I have and the the beliefs and, and motivations that I have to try and improve. And hopefully, if you're a listener to the podcast and you have similar ambitions and mindset to myself and to these authors, you will get something from it. So there you go. I would love to hear if you have any recommendations for me for 2020. I have a few on the list already. Looking forward to diving into some of those over Christmas and into the new year, um, but always open to some new recommendations, maybe some ones next year that are just out at the time. We shall take it from there. Thanks for listening. As I said, links everywhere on the on the site, on the book page, and on the episode notes. And uh, if you're listening to this over Christmas, hope you're having a nice break. That's pretty much it. So I'm going to click another button here to kind of play out the theme music and not give you the usual spiel at the end. But I shall just say good luck and thanks again. Take care.